This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The National Baseball Hall of Fame is going to announce who gets in in a couple of days. I was perusing the ballot, and this isn't necessarily about who I think should be in the Hall of Fame or who Pete should be in the Hall of Fame, but really the connection a lot of these guys have to the Mets. Some obvious because they played for us, some not obvious, some you wouldn't believe almost became Mets. So let's go through this bout. I'll start with one guy who never came close to being a Met, but is a big part of our history, and that's Scott Rowland. Scott Rowland is probably going to get in. I don't personally think of him as a Hall of Famer, but whatever. Scott Rowland is so memorable in my eyes because he's the guy that hit the ball off of Oliver Perez that was caught by Andy Chavez. So while I may not love that play, it may bring up horrible memories in my mind, it has become a celebrated play in the history of the franchise. And we shouldn't forget that it was Scott Rowland, of all people, who hit the ball and appeared it was going out for a two-run home run. Uh, He also had some great numbers against the Mets. Obviously began his career with the Philadelphia Phillies, So we saw him as a division rival, moved on Cincinnati, St. Louis, did not hit the Mets, by the way, in that NLCS, only went five for 21. But looking at his career numbers, 313 batting average against the Mets, second highest average he has against any team, 968 OPS, second highest OPS he has against any team, and in 106 games, hit 20 home runs and drove in 67 runs. So he was a tremendous player but he also put up great career numbers against the Mets. And when I think of Roland's connection with us, I think of a, the ball Endy caught, but then also in the bottom of that inning, after Chavez made the catch, Scott Roland made a massive error and he's a gold glove defensive third baseman. I think a part of the reason why he is so strongly being considered for the hall of fame is his defense. He made an error in that bottom of the sixth that set the Mets up to take the lead. So before Chavez and Valentin couldn't come through, Valentin struck out on a ball in the dirt and Andy popped up into the infield and the Mets failed in a golden opportunity to score right after Andy made the catch on the top of the inning. In that moment, Chavez makes a catch, they turn a double play and the greatest defensive third baseman of our generation makes a horrific error. I could have sworn we were going to the World Series. It wasn't just the Andy catch. It was the fact that the great Scott Rowland made an error. But that, I think, is overall our connection to Rowland. Andrew Jones is on the ballot. I will tell you, I think Andrew Jones is a Hall of Famer. 
He is the greatest defensive center fielder I've ever seen. And that's really what I think of when I think of Andrew Jones. His career numbers against the Mets, I looked him up. Nothing crazy. Hit 28 home runs. It was in 186 games. Played a lot. 260 career average against the Mets. Uh, did not kill us in the 99 NLCS, even though we remember him for drawing the walk against Kenny Rogers that ended that series. He was only 5 for 23. But when I think back to Andrew Jones, I think of watching him play defense at Chase Stadium and thinking to myself, my God, how much would it help Al Leiter? How much would it help Masato Yoshihi to have that playing center field? Because he was like nothing I've ever seen. And I think I'm biased towards him because I watched him a lot. I mean, think about it. You're a Met fan. You watched Andrew Jones play at minimum 13 times a year because they didn't expand the division games until years later. Okay, then eventually 18 times a year, 19 times a year. So we were watching him more than anybody else other than Brave fans. And he would make plays that were so difficult, look so easy. So more than any at-bat, including that walk against Kenny Rogers, which is more about Kenny Rogers than it is Andrew Jones. I just think about his defense. And I think about him throwing out Jay Payton in 1998 when Jay Payton, that schmuck, was a pinch runner and decided to try to go to third base against the arm of Andrew Jones. Someone should have taught him. You don't effing run on Andrew Jones. Also on the ballot is Jeff Kent. I think this is Kent's final year on the ballot. What could you say about Jeff Kent? (laughs) I I think he's a Hall of Famer, and gosh darn it, he was a Met. We got him for David Cohn. That was the big return along with Ryan Thompson that we got back for trading David Cohn. And Jeff Kent is a Met. His numbers were fine. Like he was a good baseball player, hit 280, a 780 OPS, hit 67 home runs for us over the course of five years. His best year with us. Let's see, what was his best year? Uh, I guess I would go with 94. Hit 14 home runs in 107 games, had an 816 OPS. He was always a good baseball player. And then in 1998, at the age of 30, he joined the San Francisco Giants. And I don't know what happened, but he became an effing superstar. The guy won the MVP in a year in which he was a teammate of Barry Bonds. He won the MVP, not Barry Bonds. Jeff Kent's unbelievable, man. Pisses me off he didn't stay with us. So is the only reason why he's not a Hall of Famer is because he's a jerk? Is that, is that really what it is? I mean, I can't understand it. It's him. It's Albert Bell. And this is what bothers me about the whole Hall of Fame. It's like, isn't it supposed to be on merit what you did in, in, in your baseball career and not if you're an ass or not? So I have theories on why Jeff Ken isn't a Hall of Famer, and I can't prove any of these theories, just some thoughts. Number one, he wasn't a great defensive player, and I'd be the first to admit that. We watched him play a lot of second base for our team. He was not good. I would say he was slightly below average would be the way I would define him. So he wasn't a butcher, but he was slightly below average. The other thing that I think hurts him is he does not have a home. What I mean by that is there is no fan base that screams and yells in love with Jeff Kent. You know, he spent six years with the San Francisco Giants. I don't think Giant fans adore him. I just don't. He spent five years with the Mets. We don't adore him. We don't even view him as a Hall of Famer. He spent... Four years with the Dodgers. People forget he was even a Dodger. He spent two years with the Astros. Great numbers. No one thinks of him as an Astro. So 
my theory with him is that he's just not connected to a franchise. It should be San Francisco. That should be the team. But there just isn't. And so, yeah, he does have a reputation as being a jerk. I never thought that was fair. I always liked Jeff Kent in my brief interactions with him. But what, what, what the hell do I know? Certainly not a writer. But it also doesn't matter. Like, who cares if he's a mean guy to a writer? Who cares if he won't give uh, Joel Sherman a quote? Like, what, what, what does that matter? So that, that it's either reminds, that or his defense. That always reminds me of the Ike Davis, Lucas Duda stuff. I forgot when it came out or how it came out, but there was a writer or a few writers that came out and said they wrote positively about Ike Davis because he was a nice guy and they spoke to the media <laughs> more. And that's why they didn't write as much or positive things about Lucas Duda. And it always made it always was confusing because they always touted Ike Davis as like this next up and coming first baseman. And meanwhile, the guy was pretty terrible besides that one year. But we had to live with the the oh he could be great, he will be great, and them dog and Lucas Duda. And they basically openly admitted that that they liked Ike Davis. And that to me is the downside of what people in the media do at times. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yeah, the, the only thing I, I, I would say is that we like to think that the writer's anger towards players is what causes them to not be in the Hall of Fame. But we've also seen these other ballots, the uh, modern day ballot that we talked about recently, and guys still don't get it. So it's not necessarily just writers not liking them. You know, Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens couldn't get in the Hall of Fame with writers. They couldn't get in the Hall of Fame with some of their peers. So you wonder sometimes if it's just that. Uh, another guy on the ballot is Andy Pettit. Andy Pettit's connection to us is that, you know, we faced him in the World Series in 2000. <laughs> faced, him, faced him a lot in interleague play. And my favorite Andy Pettit memory is that he started the very first Mets-Yankees Subway Series game in 1997, which led to a nice encounter I once had with Andy. I was at a baseball camp. I was 16 years old. I did about a two-week baseball camp. I loved playing baseball, even though I sucked at it. And the guest instructor for a day was Andy Pettit. And we were all told you can have Andy autograph one item. So I brought my item in. I knew exactly what I wanted to have autographed. And I go up to Andy and I show him a ticket stub. And he says, I, I have no problem signing this, but what is this ticket stuff from? I don't, I don't, what is this? I said, Andy, this is the first ever Subway Series. You started it. He looks at me and says, yeah, but I lost it too. And I said, I know. I'm a Mephiden. <laughs> <laughs> and he was a dude. He was a good dude. He signed it. He's like, ah, you. <laughs> I was a killer 16-year-old. What can I tell you? Gotcha. <laughs> That's awesome. Gotcha, Andy. But thanks for teaching us about your pickoff move. It's real good. Uh, Andy started game one and game five of that World Series. We talked about Al Leiter earlier on in the podcast. He faced Al Leiter. And he pitched well. Okay, and he better pitched very well. He was always a money pitcher. Gary Sheffield is on the ballot. Story time, folks. So Gary Sheffield obviously ended up being a New York Met uh, towards the end of his career. It was actually his final destination. He signed with the Mets in 2009. 
and played well. <laughs> Believe it or not, he was a part-time player with us in 2009, had some clutch hits, hit his 500th home run because he came to the team at like 499. So he was a lot to get to his 500th home run. Uh, he did that at City Field. I thought that was sort of cool, even though I had no connection to Gary Sheffield. Guy was 40 years old. Guy bounced around baseball and played for a lot of our division rivals, including crosstown rival Yankees. So we all remember, I guess, his final year here. Where again, productive. Gary Sheffield could hit to the very end. 276, 823 OPS, 10 home runs in 100 games. I got no issues. But here's the story time. If you recall, Gary Sheffield asked to be traded to the New York Mets following, or I'm sorry, before the 2001 season. Remember, Gary Sheffield began with Milwaukee, then San Diego, was a part of the Marlins, and then was actually traded for Mike Piazza in the Marlins-Dodger trade, the monster trade before we got Mike. Gary Sheffield spent a few years with the Dodgers, was incredibly productive, and after the 2000 season in which he had 43 home runs and drove in 109 runs with a 1,081 OPS, <laughs> Gary Sheffield wanted to be traded to the Mets. Here's legit reporting I think from the LA Times about this, the Mets have been unwilling to part with Mike Piazza, Edgardo Alfonso, and Armando Benitez in a potential deal for Sheffield. Let's stop there for a second. Obviously, I wasn't trading Piazza. Even though Sheffield was better than Alfonso, at that moment, I wasn't trading Alfonso either. Benitez, I would have shot into freaking orbit. So if Benitez was the holdup, I don't know what's going on. But this story is about to get worse, folks. The real crux of the issue is that the Mets refused to part with Jay Payton. (laughs) Gary Sheffield is quoted as giving his opinion on the fact the Mets wouldn't part with Jay Jay Payton. Jay Payton's going to be a great player, Sheffield told reporters at Dodgers camp. But you would think a guy like that, he's not a guy that's going to hit 40 home runs. I'm a guy that could hit 40 or 50. But Jay Payton is going to be a great player. (laughs) Jay Payton. Great player? Not so much. And Gary's just trying to be a nice guy. Gary's like, yeah, sure, he's going to be fine. But then he bashes him at the end by saying, yeah, but he's not going to be me. If the Mets were refusing to part with Jay Payton in a trade for Gary Sheffield after the 2001 season, or I guess this is before the 2001 season, that's right, it was after the Mets won the pennant. The year in which they said, ah, we're good with A-Rod. Let's make up a story about how he's this selfish douche. They also had a chance to get Gary Sheffield, but Gary Payton was the problem. So trade doesn't happen. Then, in the following offseason, we're at it again. Gary Sheffield wanted out, and the Dodgers were openly shopping him. Gary Sheffield also said that he would use his no-trade clause, though, even if traded to the Mets, because he wanted to renegotiate his contract, okay? So he had a full no-trade list, preferred to go to the Mets, the Yankees. Those are the two teams on his list of where he preferred to go, but he was going to want a brand-new contract, all right? Here's the Met offer. He ended up getting traded to the Braves, in case anyone forgot. He was traded to Atlanta for Andrew Brown, Brian Jordan, and Odalis Perez. So he didn't exactly get a monster return. The Mets offered, okay, so this is what the Mets offered a year later. 
Armando Benitez, Jay Payton. <laughs> they offered Jay Payton a year later. They're like, F it, just take him. And Glendon Rush. The Dodgers turned it down. They accepted the brave deal. Gary Sheffield goes to the Atlanta Braves. But a year before that, they would have said yes. A yeah. year before that, the Dodgers would have said yes. They're so who who was the GM at that time? I got to call Steve him Phillips, the great Steve Phillips. Stevie, what are you doing? Ruining well, our franchise. <laughs> I do think the second time around, I'm more skeptical about because of the whole contract negotiation. The Mets are probably going to have to give a lot of money, and I don't know if the Mets were willing to do that at that time. You know, after the 2001 season, they had signed Kevin Apier to replace Mike Hampton. They ended up trading Apier from Ovon. I'm not sure if they were going to give Gary Sheffield a mega contract, but it does look bad. And these were separate articles I had read, I think from LA-based papers. I'm trying to remember. I should cite it. That's a bad job out of me. I apologize. Next time I cite a story with all these fun rumors from 25 years ago, I should write down which paper. Maybe it's the New York Post. How about if I just say both papers and I get it covered? LA Times, New York Post, somebody. There you go. But that a year earlier, they're refusing to offer Jay Payton or Armando Benitez and then a year later, they're like, take them. That sounds like, that sounds like something Pete Halpin would do in fantasy. Well, what, watch yourself. But that does prove, though, how we were always – we never wanted to go for the jugular. And that was the problem with the Mets overall is that they'd hit a, a peak and then they'd fall back down to earth the next year because they just couldn't take that extra step. Gary Sheffield right. on the Mets would have been amazing. Incredible. over. Incredible. I mean, look at his numbers. He was still a beast in his career. Uh, you keep him around, he gives you four or five monster seasons. But instead, they were collecting artifacts. They acquired Roberto Alomar. They acquired Mo Vaughn. They tried to acquire Juan Gonzalez. It didn't work out. And yet Gary Sheffield was in their back pocket. So we ended up with Gary Sheffield many, many years later, 2009, final year of his career. But even long before that, they were factors.